All right, welcome to another episode of the Unprofessionals in Energy podcast. I'm Mark Heinemann, and today I'm joined by Miles Abar. Miles, did I get that pronunciation yeah, in your last name correct? Right. All right, awesome. So, Miles leads the uh, Carbon America R&D effort to develop new carbon capture technologies, which is super cool. It's here in Arvada, in Denver, um, or in the in Colorado, in the Denver metro area. So, Miles, I'm going to let you give kind of a brief uh, intro of, of yourself for your professional career, and then let's dive kind of in, into your background and, and how you got to where you are. All right. Um, yeah, so let's see. I went to undergrad for aerospace at uh, University of California, San Diego. Um, was originally planning to to leave and start start working. Um, at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, no way I'm going to grad school. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was around <laughs> Funny the... Funny how uh, that happens, right? Yeah. Well, it was around the Great Recession. I did. There was no jobs that I saw that I liked. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to wait this thing out in grad school. So decided to go to CU Boulder. Um, at yeah. the time, was really excited. Yeah, yeah. At the time, I was really excited about uh, nanotechnology and energy harvesting and things like that. And I started with a group there for a PhD program. Long story short, um, didn't really uh, love doing. Uh, so it was actually microsystems. Uh, it was mostly yeah, fabrication. Men's, men's group, right? Micro yeah, electrical yeah. systems. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's not that I don't like the area. It's just that I didn't love the focus of the work. I was mostly doing fabrication stuff and figuring out how to make certain things versus I'm more of like a, you know, idea analysis type of person. Um, but yeah, so it actually is an interesting story there. So I was working on this project to develop a, uh, a micro cryo compressor. And it was for this micro cryogenic cooler. And I was just, it was just actually is called the curse project there. Like I had taken over after like two other grad students, like abandoned it. And as I started to get into it and try and figure out how do I, you know, meet the requirements set by, it was a DARPA project. And, and I realized that, uh, as I, you know, kept not figuring out how to get the, the power I needed, I was like, I started looking to, okay. They want us to use piezoelectric uh, actuators, and I started to see, okay, well, what's the power I need? How, what's the po- potential power density, or what's the highest power density that anyone's ever done a piezoelectric actuator? And I found out, oh, we're off by like an order of magnitude or two. And I was like, it's not like they, it's not possible. And and I, you know, I was like, okay, well, what else can I do? And I thought I came up with this clever concept actually to power a whole network of microcompressors through this hydraulic system. And then you have a hydraulic, like a larger actuator that would then disperse the hydraulic energy through the network sort of thing. And that I thought I could get the power density I needed. And I went to the professor on, on this project and, you know, kind of voiced it to him. And he was just like, not happy. He's like, no, I promised DARPA we were going to use pesos. You got to figure out a way. And that was kind of, you know, <laughs> no. kind of like the last straw for me. I was like, all right, never mind. Um, kind of, yeah. But, through that process, I was, I was really excited about the idea still. And I was like, okay, interesting. How would I store the energy on this thing? I was like, instead of storing a battery to drive a pump, what if I just stored like compressed air cartridge and use compressed air on the other side? And then I was like, Oh, I wonder. And I started to do the math on like what the energy density was of that. And I was like, Oh, that actually seems reasonably decent. I want, why are people looking at this at a larger scale? You know, ended up, you know, coming to find that people have looked into compressed air energy storage and it's actually been around since the seventies. 
And uh, anyway, he's kind of got obsessed with that for a while and tried to start a project with one uh, professor and then ended up, you know, in that period, I was just exploring all different ideas, different projects I could do, whatever, but really excited about energy storage and in particular compressor energy storage. And there was this uh, Energy Frontiers Conference at CU, and I decided I'd go to that, and I was just perusing to see who was going to be there, what companies, and stumbled upon this uh, company called Bright Energy Storage Technologies. I was like, oh, energy storage, interesting. Come to find out they're working on compressed their energy storage here in Arvada. <laughs> For uh, for our audience, do you mind just giving a quick tangent or overview of kind of what compressed air storage is or what the oh, yeah, fundamental sure. kind of principles are behind it? Yes, yes. So compressed air energy storage is just a way to store electric energy and then generate it later. But you're using compressed air as the a storage medium rather than, say, electrochemical battery. So Or like uh, a sharp- jam or pump storage. or Right. Oh, yeah. 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 So. So the way you store energy is you basically use electricity to drive a compressor. Say, I'm just going to give you the simple version. Uh, you drive a compressor, compress up air, store it in a tank, or you actually nominally store it underground in a reservoir because that's very cheap storage. And then later when you want to generate electricity, you take that compressed air, typically heat it up in some way. Either you store that heat beforehand and you reuse it, or you use gas or some other heat source, uh, waste heat source. And you heat up the air, and then you run it through a turbine, an expander, and you generate electricity. And so it turns out that this can be really cost-effective, um, especially if you put the the air underground, because the uh, the the cavern, the storage vessel, can become very cheap, basically. Um, right. You, you don't have to have. I mean, it's just a well bore that you drill yes. in, the, in the ground, and then yeah, pressure up the reservoir and pump air in, and yep. gas comes back out. Exactly. So. Exactly. What's, yeah, what's kind actually, of the efficiency? Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. just curious. Or no, the totally. Conversion efficiency of yeah, totally you, know, you put energy in and yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, I'll get into more of this sort of subject, sure. but um, just to you know quickly answer your question, you know, I think people in the past have proposed like mid seventy percent round trip efficiency might be possible, but that's probably or pretty unlikely. Well, and also it depends. So there's two ver- two main versions of it compressor energy storage there's adiabatic which is like the newer style that people are trying to do which is you store the heat of compression and use it later and then you don't you have to use any gas heat the gas heat version is going to be you know kind of different set of math so i'm not going to i'm not going to sure. talk about that one i'm just going to talk about the adiabatic which is more of a direct comparable to batteries uh, so that one yeah people have thought they can get to you know, 70 to 75 percent maybe but you know you're That's paying for it you're paying for it in capital. I don't, I don't actually expect that to be the optimum. It, you know, more like I would say 60% is probably more closer to the optimum. Sometimes you sure. might even want to go lower. It's the cost versus a capital cost versus efficiency trade off that you, right. you know, OPEX versus CAPEX trade off that you got to do. Cool. So let's circle back. You were yeah. So, that. yeah. So, well, I was, I found this company in our event. I was like, oh, I got to go talk to him. Met uh, Scott Frazier, who's the CEO of Bright Energy Storage, now our CTO of of Carbon America, um, just started chatting with him and then eventually started just kind of working a side gig with the company, which turned into a full-time position. <laughs> and so Bright Energy Storage is the sister company Carbon America there. Uh, and so eventually it spun out Carbon America in 2009, end of 2019, early 2020, uh, or somewhere around, maybe it was, maybe it was beginning of 2019. I can't remember any. <laughs> COVID threw me for a loop on the time. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, 
uh, started working with them and uh, started as an analyst, ended up doing my PhD on work we were doing. So I ended up getting a project uh, with the company to do my PhD and finish that and uh, just started. Um, I just got really excited by the the energy source space and then more broadly decarbonization. Uh, got really interested in techno-economics and physics modeling. So I, I got really good at understanding everything from the physics to the economic side of things and um, ended up coming up with our carbon capture technology that we're working on today and then spinning out Carbon America's it's a really short story. <laughs> that's 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 awesome, man. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Su- super cool. Um, so when when were you at CU? Let's see. I started in 2011. Okay. And then I ended up finally finishing my PhD in 2016. But I started okay. working for Bright Energy in 2013. Okay. So I was doing like so we we're time. we're running around campus at the same time. Or I, I was there until 2013. So. I imagine nice. we were we we probably bumped into each other aside to the mechanical department. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually getting beers with uh, Hamlington this afternoon. So super oh, nice. super, super yeah. stoked to stay in touch. Anyway, uh, and then your PhD, what what did you end up eventually studying, or or what was the focus of of that? Yeah. You finally uh, defended. Yeah. So the so the company when I joined was working on underwater compressed air energy storage. So instead of putting the under, yeah, so, so putting it in a cavern, which is like site dependent, you got to go find a, the right location for that. The idea is, oh, as long as you got a large body of water, which um, is still site dependent, but maybe a little more versatile, uh, you can actually pump, you have a like a bag, basically, uh, and you use a hydrostatic pressure of the water deep under the water to store the pressure of the gas. So you pump it into the bag deep underwater and that stores your compressed air is the idea. Interesting. Really, yeah, really neat idea. Uh, turns out that, one of that'd the, be a huge bag, right? Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, cheap. it's a huge bag, but it's uh, or many or many big bags, yes. Yeah. Uh, but but the bag itself is is dirt cheap, you know, uh, for the energy you're getting. Really, the cost the cost driver is the getting the compressed air or the power to and from the shoreline and mm. then underwater. Yeah, that's the that's the cost driver. But uh, for long duration transportation energy infrastructure of either the electricity or the gas, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But like for long duration, it could it could make sense. Uh, we we paused on that effort because we ended up exploring all sorts of ideas. I mean, basically, we acted as a uh, yeah, Scott doesn't like when when I say this, but we effectively acted as a think tank for like you know six years or more. Uh, yeah. Just kind of like you know design, building, testing, learning you know, coming up with new ideas and, you know, we just iterated for years on all sorts of things. But yeah, so to answer your question, the PhD I did ended up being in pump thermal energy storage, uh, which is actually, it's got a lot of uh, analogies to compress there, actually. It's got the compression, the expansion, the heat storage, uh, but actually it's a closed loop rather than an open loop. So compressed air is an open loop where you take air, you compress it up, you store it in a vessel and then you return it back uh, to atmosphere. Um, so that's what I'm calling open loop. And versus closed loop, uh, basically it would be like you turn it back around and have the and have the outlet of one side go, become the inlet of the other. So uh, you think of a heat pump um, like uh, to you know heat your house. For, you know it's actually not a super common way to do it, but it's becoming more and more common. Is uh, you use a compressor to generate heat 
and then you either uh, after you, you you put that heat somewhere, you either throttle that fluid through a, a expand or a, a throttle valve or an expander or something, depending on what's what type of fluid you're working with. Um, so with that, you can gen you can use electricity to generate heat, and all you're doing is storing heat. You're not storing any fluid like with compressed air. You're just cir circling around this fluid in a closed loop, uh, generating heat and storing it in some sort of heat storage, right? And mm -hmm. so we were using ammonia as the working fluid, compressing that up, storing it in a concrete thermal energy storage. And uh, and it turns out that ammonia has similar properties to water from a thermodynamic cycle perspective. It's got similar temperature pressure ranges that's working with. It's not identical, definitely not, but sure. it can get it can get up there in terms of temperature. And so... Uh, what we ended up coming up with was uh, we actually can. So there's a lot of power, there's a lot of power plants out there that are just a gas turbine and they don't. So mo so the efficient way to uh, generate electricity from gas is you have what's called a combined cycle. So you have mm -hmm. a, a gas turbine which generates electricity using uh, combustion of natural gas. And then when it leaves the turbine, it's actually still very hot and its waste heat can be utilized. So you put in a steam plant to absorb that heat, generate more electricity, and you cool the gas down to closer to ambient temperature, all right? Or there's, you know, there's a lot of plants out there that don't put the steam cycle in there. They're called gas peakers. The reason they do that is because they're not operating very often, so it turns out that, that it's, you know, not worth the capex. capex opex balance, yeah. Another capex, yeah, exactly. It's always that. Um, but yeah, so, so the idea was, okay, we can go to these sites that are just peaker plants, don't have the bottoming cycle, what's called the steam bottoming cycle, and we use an ammonia heat pump to, we can utilize that heat, plus we have an energy storage system with it. And we had this interesting compressor expander idea where we'd use this reciprocating machine to act as both a compressor and an expander, so you buy one machine to do both. And so I did basically the design and optimization of that that process along with the thermal energy storage. So I built some, some models to simulate that and simulate and then do some economic estimations. So like bo bottoms up cost estimation of all the components and iterated on all that to kind of come up with a solution. And, you know, one of the, that was a really good learning experience for me. I think one of the, the thing, I guess one of the, you know, main conclusions I think that I learned about from that whole process was just the reason why energy storage is so, you know, quote, expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the main reasons is the low capacity, what's called capacity factor. So capacity factor is how often you can run a system to generate electricity. That's, that's my definition I'm giving to it at least. Um, sure. So with energy storage, so, with, okay, with a coal plant or natural gas plant, typically, historically, they're running like, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the year. So they're always generating revenue. Right. And that and if you, you know, you invested you know, billion dollars in capital, uh, that could be worth it because you're generating so much revenue and makes up for that. And so your paybacks are good. But um, you can imagine, you know, with the coal plant example, if you were only operating, say, 25 percent of the year, um, you're going to get paid back, you know, three to three to four times less. Uh, so your paybacks are going to be much longer. You're, you're not going to get a good return on investment ultimately. Well, right, it turns out right. with, with energy storage, you could only generate the best case 50% of the time. That would be like literally running all the time because you have to charge half the time. And that would be 100% right. efficient system, which doesn't exist. So really, you, best case, you're going to maybe get 40% capacity factor. 
and more likely you're going to get much less than that, like like 30 percent. So so that just makes it really hard to uh, pay for all this capital for this energy storage because you can't generate as much revenue with it, at least with the current markets right now. Right. Things are changing. Markets are changing. Or market concepts are changing. Just the, the price signals are changing with all the renewables and that sort of thing. We're getting negative prices now where it can be. Actually, you can get paid to charge, interestingly. Um, so that, that stuff's shifting. But, you know, back then that, that didn't really exist. There are these negative price signals that exist. There was less work on the, the innovation of the markets. And and so uh, so this was a way to basically leverage the fact that there's the gas plant there that we can run on demand and you can actually have a higher capacity factor uh, uh, using the same system and then also have the capability to do energy storage as well. Um, so can I really, say it back to you to see if I understand? So sure. if you're running your peaker plant or your gas plant more often, so you have a higher capacity factor. You'd use, and perhaps you didn't need all of the electricity. You would use some of that excess electricity to generate high-grade heat and store it in your power fluid that was ammonia. And then when you needed that, you'd recycle it. Or how how would you deploy? Yeah, sort sort of. Yeah. So yeah, when, you, when you're whenever you're running the gas turbine, you're going to be generating that heat. And so we would just put mm-hmm. that into our concrete storage. We might, it, you know. Supposedly, if you're running the gas turbine, you're probably going to be wanting to be running your ammonia discharge as well, because clearly the price signals are suggesting that it's worth it to generate electricity. So in that case, it's typically acting as a bottoming cycle. You just take that heat and you run your ammonia thermal engine basically like you would a steam engine or steam plant. And so you just generate electricity. So it'd be more efficient process overall while the gas plant is running. And then when the gas plant is not running, you could be charging, say, so ch- using electricity to charge your system for times when later you want to want to run the whole thing. So you can actually. Uh, so in that example, we're giving where the gas plant's running or the gas turbine's running. Uh, you might have excess heat stored in your thermal plant, too. So you run your ammonia system at higher power than what would be typical for a combined cycle. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. OK, so that was sorry. Was that your Ph.D. work then or part yeah. of it or what? what right. Yeah, so it's mostly on building that model to do all that. Uh, so the okay. di- so it's a couple of, like dynamic model and capital cost model to then explore uh, costs, you know, opex, capex trades for this concept and, and what were the economic drivers and uh, that sort of thing. Awesome. So you, I mean, your opportunity that sounded like was kind of a consulting or side gig turned into a full time uh, gig. Uh, yeah. It, my my grandmother always used to say when you know you get for good work more work. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. <laughs> so uh, t- talk to me about kind of your transition to like full time there, and then like how you guys decided to spin off uh, Carbon America. Yeah. So another decently long story, but uh, I actually start like so I started at like ten hours a week in like November and by. I think like January, they offered me a full time job, sort of thing. They're like, this guy's pretty smart. We gotta like keep him around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I was also, I think, just like, I really love the work and it showed, you know, and I yeah. think they like that. And we're very mission driven people here. And I think it's valued. Um, so, so I was, you know, so medium tough decision, but I was already so excited. I was like, yeah, I'm definitely. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this full time. I'll figure out if I do the PhD or not, but that's not the priority anymore. And, yeah. uh, but 
you know, ended up. Isn't, isn't it gratifying when you realize like, you know, education sounded so important, but then I reached a point and I was like, wait, now I, I get actually gone do and like their education, like the people that I'm learning from actually don't know as much or Absolutely. as I do now. All right. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, funny me saying this considering I do have a PhD, but I don't think, yeah, like classic education is required, right? Like I, yeah. I think I would have turned out just as well as I have if I had quit my PhD then. I decided to finish it up because I was pretty far along the path and Right. I, and, and I was like, well, this will be like fallback. It's not going to hurt to have a PhD. Right. And yeah. I had cool stuff I was doing here that I was able to convince the professor at CU to let me do a project uh, on that they advised and just kind of worked out. So I did it. Um, it obviously costs a lot more time on the weekends and everything to, to do that. But glad I did it. Uh, it was more of like a uh, checkbox, yeah, like I feel good that I pulled that off or whatever, but how much value does it truly add to my career? I'm not sure it adds a ton. Um, I think what's important is, is just, you know, learning what, you, well, some require classic education for, but isn't, you know, you could do it yourself sort of thing. Right, right. So circling back to Carbon America, how'd you guys decide that you guys wanted to spin off and make that, make that yeah. something else? So, yeah, as I mentioned, we spent, you know, basically 2014 through 2018 uh, acting mostly as a think tank. So I started with, or maybe it was maybe 2013, but yeah, uh, basically we had the underwater idea, pushed it. We had a project with the Navy that we did a full, like a, a pilot out back, basically. Yeah, not underwater. We were just putting in tanks so we could test the rest of the system. And just through that process, just learned a lot. Learned a lot about um, how much these things cost. Learned about the performance. Learned about um, what you know. This this idea that actually a lot of the energy is stored in the heat, and then that turned into the pump thermal idea. And then we did some. We actually built the. We ended up. Uh, so we had an angel investor, Alex Lau. We were very fortunate to have him on the team and. And uh, he was very patient with us. Uh, whenever we came up with a new idea, he was excited to explore it and uh, allowed us to try all these different ideas over the years. And we designed, built, and tested many systems, um, almost all in the thermal fluid space and mostly on energy, you know, focused on energy storage. But through that process, we started to learn a lot about the economic drivers for uh, what we call clean dispatchable power. So uh, that is the to summarize what that is. That's basically filling in the gaps of renewables. Like I'm, I'm assuming a future where we fully decarbonize. So I think that's I would bet anything that's going to happen. Um, and so when you when you have that assumption, okay, well, how's that going to be done? Well, renewables are really cheap, uh, and that's great, but they only do part of the job. You need to fill in. The gaps when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining. And how do you do that? You need something you can flip a switch and do that with. Well, energy storage is one way to do that. And that's kind of been the baseline assumption for most of that's how we're going to do it. We're going to have energy, store energy when we've got it and use it, uh, when we need it. And, and, uh, but you know, there's other ideas that can do that beyond energy storage. So, um, there's carbon capture, which I'll get into in a sec. Um, 
There's nuclear to some extent. Now, nuclear isn't super flexible, but you can add flexibility to it in certain with energy storage, for example, um, thermal energy storage also. But, uh, you know, there's geothermal. Um, there's, uh, you know, hydrogen, for example, or synthetic fuels. So any of these can, you know, act as a clean to special power. And so I got pretty obsessed with, like, because we were just in the space of exploration, I was like, yeah, what is the lowest cost way to do this? Is, you know, how much does energy storage make sense versus something else? And got started doing a lot of research in this field called capacity planning, which is basically where they make a model to simulate the change in the grid from now through, say, 2050 is a typical uh, number. So, and then typically what they're doing is they say, okay, I want to decarbonize by X amount by this time frame. And I'm going to look at, you know, this subset of the grid or the whole U.S. or China or wherever. And they do a model. And sometimes this is as fine a detail as like every hour of the year all the way to 2050. And they're looking at things like, do I put a grid line here or there? Do I put energy, install energy storage or solar or carbon capture, any of these things? And they're really trying to model how the grid would expand and how much would that cost, right? How much would it decarbonize and explore the sensitivity of like, this technology is more impactful than that. Or if we get the cost to here on that technology, it can be of this value, things like that. And Sorry, Miles, was, found, was this you guys that put, no, put together no, this analysis I, or some, someone else? No, no, someone like there's others that do that. I was just, ex, I was just reading up papers. Um, so there's like, there's this group out of Berkeley. They have a switch model that they've been working on for a long time. Um, there was, uh, so another one that's more recent that, we've had conversations with is this group out of Princeton, uh, the Gen X group. Uh, and I think Jesse Jenkins is the professor. Um, but yeah, there, and there's several others that I did, that's just sure. going off memory. Uh, but, but yeah, so I was just reading up on it, trying to understand what, what their, what the implications were of their findings. And I did, uh, see that carbon capture, um, and I, I'm getting ahead of it. There was actually a step before this, but I'll say this anyways. So uh, carbon capture de- definitely showed like it could lower the cost a lot. And, you know, energy storage um, uh, played a big role. But, you know, uh, solar and wind, uh, you know, if you if you install, you know, more, you build out the grid that can help leverage the solar and wind in different areas sort of things. So like things like that. Uh, but backtracking a little bit. So. Before that, we actually did start to look into carbon capture. Scott had this really interesting concept to do this bottoming area, basically a, sorry, a um, combined cycle coal plant. So basically you, again, the same idea as a combined cycle of natural gas plant, where you have a topping cycle and a bottoming cycle. And so typical coal plants only have the bottoming cycle, so they use the heat to generate steam. But there's this really high-grade heat that's not being utilized, that's mostly because uh, you know, putting coal in a combustion turbine, there's too much uh, like slag and, and nasty stuff in there to make that work. But if you had a, the idea was, okay, you have a heat exchanger to exchange heat uh, in between the compressor and expander of a gas turbine. And that can, uh, that can get you your topping cycle base is a simple story. And we're not the first ones to come up with it, but, but then uh, we started exploring that. And we're like, well, we should put with all the extra revenue we're going to get from the efficiency, let's, let's put carbon capture on there, make it clean. And then that's where we first started looking and, you know, I started looking into research 
a carbon capture. What are the different options there? Long story short, came to a cryogenic carbon capture uh, from a group out of Utah that was uh, had written several papers on it, and uh, and it just seemed really interesting. It seemed that well, one, the costs they were showing were really really good, and um, and then you know I think it resonated with me because uh, we're we just are experts in thermal fluid systems, and it's like okay, cool, you can use a heat pump to basically car- capture carbon. And, uh, and yeah, so, and, and the more I looked into it and the more I did like the techno-economic analysis of like the Scott's, uh, coal plant cycle with the carbon capture and assessing, okay, what are the real drivers here? And, and I was, you know, I should say like when we're, when we started to do these techno-economic assessments of these different concepts, we were looking at it through the lens of just what is the lowest cost way to generate electricity cleanly in a dispatchable way? The clean dispatchable energy, not solar and wind. Uh, but everything else, what's the cheapest way to do that? And I think that is, um, I personally think that's one of the best framings of the problem um, because it doesn't rely on certain incentives that might be here today. And it, and it, I think it comes with a, well, I think there was a realization for me that to, to uh, whatever clean dispatchable energy systems we come up with in the future, it's going to cost more than business as usual, unfortunately. I think a lot of people look, point to solar and wind, they're like, oh, look, it's cheaper then, you know, coal and natural gas, it's like, yeah, but it's only available when it's available. Right. From a system level, that if you need, yeah. if, the, if your requirement is you have to have a ventilator on 100% of the time and, yeah, yeah have life support for right. your, your loved ones on to have electricity all the time. Like, yes. it's not, it's not cheaper. <laughs> it's not, it's not cheaper. It's not. And, uh, and, and to, to make it all clean, uh, it's going to, co- I realize it's just going to cost more money. I, we couldn't find any solutions out there that are going to cost less. And so, so the framing, ter- cause I think when people are tackling these problems, like I'm going to make energy storage and they're thinking, well, somehow I got to make it cheaper than coal, right? Sorry, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, unless that, okay, there, what would make that happen is if somehow coal got really expensive, which might happen. Uh, sure. Like the, the fuel itself. Or if somehow electricity, you had a separate electricity generation source that was so cheap that yeah. Right. But yeah. But I mean, even then, if you look at it to your point from a system perspective, it's like, how did you get to the point where it was so cheap? It's like, well, you probably overinstalled it and you're not generating as much revenue on that system as you could have. And so you put in this other, you augment it with an energy storage to make up for that. But you're kind of cheating, I think, in that way. Um, so anyways, we were trying to look, frame it in a way that is, you know, super uh, fair comparisons. Uh, uh, and and basically. Uh, when I started to look at carbon capture, I was like, wow, this actually has the opportunity to be the lowest cost solution, right? Especially if you're retrofitting existing plants. So that's, I think, a key here is um, we are looking to retrofit existing power plants because there's, I mean, there's, I like to give a number, there's 2 million megawatts of coal power in the world, right? The average age is roughly 10 years old. Like, to, we need to, we need to clean these up within the next, like, decade or two you really think we're going to be able to turn and, all and the place most all of them that are power in, yeah most <laughs> of them china. aren't in america right like <laughs> no most of them are in china and we and that's a key part of our long-term goal is to, to help china decarbonize um but yeah there's the it's hard to compete with a already already sunk capital you've got already installed assets that are uh, from a perspective of new power are free right so you just have to pay for the operations so anyways 
I, I kind of saw that and got excited about carbon capture. That's when I started looking at the capacity planning and uh, it reaffirmed that, yeah, carbon capture has the potential to be a really, uh, a really good uh, economic or economic way to decarbonize quickly. And, you know, that was, that's our goal. We want to decarbonize. That's our only goal. We don't care how it's done. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, we do care how it's done, but in general, we want to do it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Clean, uh, fast, ethical. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and, and then we, so we ended up, I ended up, well, Scott, Scott actually kind of pushed on it to like, let's come up with our own strategy. And so started doing a lot of process designs on how would we do cryogenic carbon capture and long, you know, eventually came up with what we call Frost CC, which is our cryogenic carbon capture technology that we're pursuing today and we're really excited about. We think it could lower the cost of capture. Um, we think it, we cut the cost of capture in half sort of thing and, uh, and, and have really good returns on investment and re- it's very retrofitable. So it's designed to retrofit uh, existing plants in a relatively easy way, which that's not common for carbon capture. It's actually traditionally can be challenging or not cost effective to retrofit. Uh, so we want, we don't want to install new gas and coal plants. We want to just clean up the ones that are there as well as cement and steel. You know, it's not, so cement and steel make up uh, something like, you know, close to 10% of worldwide emissions. Uh, so that's a huge, and a that's, huge thing that's that needs in to be cement and steel factories. They're combusting probably gas, right? To so it's, have yeah, lots it's, of heat, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's part of it, but also cement itself, uh, the process of calcination emits CO2. Uh, so, so there's just an inherent chemical process involved in making, you know, typical cement that we make, right. uh, that emits CO2. And for perspective, what percent are, I guess, the cement manufacturing of total emissions? I, I knew this in the past, yeah. but, and it's okay if you don't know. I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, um, so number of like 10% like, or 20% or something. Yeah, like close to 10%. So I, I think I, I think I, um, was a little conservative when I said 10% for both cement and steel worldwide. But I've heard numbers like five, 8% for right. cement alone. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's a material amount. But yeah, we, yeah. we got to figure that out too if you want to be, if, if the, ch- if the problem is to, yeah, get rid, rid of all CO2 emissions. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's, so, so, that, so I'll, I, I'll try and I, summarize or say it back when, when you were doing your storage analysis and looking at the system level view of like what would be the best way to decarbonize. Um, it sounds like keeping existing assets operating and still using fossil fuels, but then adding on the carbon capture technology in a cost effective and innovative way was a really, really good solution that you guys identified. From like a systems and yeah, economic sort of. level scale. Sort of. That's what we, that's what we identified as, as a potential, as one of the lowest cost strategies to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't, nice. I wouldn't say we were coming from a perspective of trying to, uh, make sure we continue to use fossil fuel. That wasn't the goal. Sure. It was just to decarbonize and it turned out that, yeah, that's a good way to do it. Um, <laughs> and it's like, well, and, we, know, we've spent a bunch of money on all this stuff already. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, long term. So yeah, just, you know, cause there is a, uh, idealist in me that I'll say doesn't, doesn't love, I mean, there's lots of bad things with fossil fuel extraction and mining and things like that, that we need to get away from. Um, but the fir- the primary objective right now is we got to decarbonize. Most people I don't think realize how hard that's going to be to decarbonize a worldwide economy by 2050. It's, 
it's an enormous challenge that I can't, I can't even fully it's express. Tr- uh, Trillions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, you think about all the infrastructure that we built so far. Uh, yeah. I mean, I quick, quick side note or a- anecdote to that point. I remember sitting in master's thermal class with John Daly and <laughs> his comment about decarbonization was like, do you know how many trillions of dollars the world has already spent on pipelines and gas stations and power plants? And like, no one understands the scale of this. <laughs> no. Yeah. No one does. I agree. Yeah. It's, uh, so that's the, that's where we're coming from, which is how do we do this cost effectively? Cause cost effectively means timely, really. Like the reason yeah. things are cost effective. It's because they require less resources, which will require less time. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, but that's. So, so Carbon America's goals, missions, make climate change history. You guys have that on your website. And that sounds like big focus is the retrofit or add technology to existing coal and gas power plants that, um, is, is a new technology and that you guys are hoping to develop and deploy, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and Frost CC, that's, is that the, Name that you guys have given it? Yeah, actually, we're going through a name, a branding exploration <laughs> right now, but, um, that's, that's, yeah, that's part of the process. It's important too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really got to mention, uh, I've totally focused on technology because that's my space, right? And that's, uh, that's, right. that's where, where I work and, and that's everything I said. That's the story that I've been, you know, the path I've been on, but I, I didn't mention yet that what, before we spun out Carbon America, um, there was a lot of excitement of, we were already excited about carbon capture because of the technology side. 45Q came out and 45Q is a tax credit that pay, you know, U.S. tax credit that, uh, now will pay up to $50 per ton. Um, or it's, it's close to getting to that. There, it was ramping up over time, but eventually soon it's going to be up to $50 per ton to capture and sequester CO2. And, and so the, all of a sudden, basically, and I think there was a 45Q before that. It was just a lot lower price. But basically overnight, it was like, oh, these projects can be economic. And like people are going to pay us to do this. Yeah. <laughs> this great. And so we were like, all of us were really excited. Like, okay, great. We can, this is the business now. All of a sudden, this, this can be a business. And uh, Alex Lau, who's our angel investor, also got really excited. And he was more looking at it through the lens of, of the project perspective. Like, how do we go do these projects and in like, Basically, you came up with this great, you know, really cool strategy that we're now doing today, which is a, um, a vertically integrated carbon capture project company. So because basically um, there was there's a lot of pieces to the carbon capture project puzzle. So you need to uh, design and install a capture system at a certain plant. And so typically we are retrofitting to answer your question earlier. Uh, I think there, we would explore non retrofits, but most for the most part, we're retrofitting industrial and excuse me, power systems. And and so you got to design and install the capture system for that plant. You got to figure out where you're going to put the CO2. So typically at the scales we're talking, we're going to put it underground. And just to go on that tangent for a second, uh, sure. a lot of people, I think, worry about that. Like, oh, is it, where are you going to put all this CO2? Is it okay if you put it underground? How much is that going to cost? Is there enough space? So the uh, U.S. government's been looking into this for a uh, couple of decades and shorter answer is there's a lot of places to put it. Um, it can be stored there safely. You know, like, for example, we were extracting fossil fuel from the ground, which has been there for, you know, forever, <laughs> millions of years and uh, and without leaking. And, and so we're confident that we can store 
the needed quantities uh, underground for as long as, you know, basically as long as we need. I think, uh, I remember Elon Musk pointed this out, which is a, uh, a good point of like, yeah, if it leaks 1%, that's fine if you're putting in, you're continuing to put in CO2. Like it's more about the net in versus out. So you can have it right. leaking if you continue to put it in. So um, even, yeah, it has to be net negative, right? Exactly. Except for the yeah. atmosphere concentration. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyways, um, so, so yeah, we, we're confident. But I also want to mention that, like, I think we, another thing, you know, coming from my idealist side, I was worried about this too. Um, but I came to the realization that we need to solve that problem regardless because there's corners of the economy that we will never, we will, well, I should say never decarbonize, but we won't decarbonize for, you know, at least a century type of thing. Um, talk about every single, we're going to turn off every single, uh, um, car in the world that burns oil. Um, you're going to turn off every, uh, furnace that uses wood or gas, right? Like that's not going to, that's not going to happen, uh, anytime soon. And uh, also all these, like, there's so many different leaks and all sorts of processes, industrial manufacturing processes that we won't get rid of. So you're going to need a way to actually pull CO2 from the atmosphere. Also, we already have too much CO2 in the atmosphere. So we need to pull that out too. So we're, and where are you going to put that? Well, uh, some people like to think, oh, well, you can make something useful with the CO2. Well, yeah, the quantities we're talking are so enormous that unlike other than a fuel, that's the only thing I think of that would scale with the quantity of CO2 we need to uh, we need to sequester. But a fuel, you're going to go burn it again and it's going to remit. Right. So you need to put it somewhere. So we need to take the CO2 that's in the atmosphere, going to be in the atmosphere in the next century and put it underground. So we need to solve that problem. So anyways, back to the story of the project side. So. Um, we, we were, uh, so you need to see, uh, capture system install, see, where are you going to put it underground? Sequestration, uh, design, research, uh, permitting, uh, and install. And then, uh, how are you going to transport it from the emission to the, uh, to the sink, uh, underground? And so that's, you know, t- typically that will be a pipeline, but there might be cases where you would do some other form like trucking. So anyways, a lot of moving parts, a lot of regulations, um, a lot of different skill sets involved in all yeah. that. Also, you, also, if you're going to, you know, get tax credits, you need some tax equity partnership. And there's a lot of compli- that's a pretty complicated system alone, uh, finance system to set up. And you need to set up all these like companies and things like that to move around the money. And, uh, and this is the kind of thing that's done in the wind industry, by the way, to get wind tax credits. Right. Um, and then, yeah, project financing, you gotta, you gotta sell the project to the emission source, right? There, a lot of pieces. And then a lot of logistics and a lot of things go wrong. And, and so the idea is if we can be the first one to pull that all in house, no, cause no one's doing it right now. There's no, there's not really any competition yet. So now right. could be the opportunity to develop those skills all in house, have the ability to control all those pieces of the puzzle to optimize the logistics, uh, decrease timelines. Uh, and, and lower costs ultimately. And so that, you know, so we, that's the idea of Carbon America is we're a vertically integrated carbon capture project company. First and foremost, we're actually technology agnostic, although we have this frosty C technology that we'll talk a little more about. Um, we're only doing that because we think it can help, uh, lower the cost of our projects. So if there's another technology that comes along that we identify that could be more cost effective or better in some way, we would want to use that. Right. Um, and, yeah. and hopefully that will come come. We will discover those technologies or those will get commercialized. Um, so, 
So yeah, I need to mention that aspect of the projects. I I forgot goosebumps. It's like pretty (laughs) awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, thinking about you guys, you guys identified a niche that is, I I would agree with your perspective. And I think many people in the finance and energy industry would also that this, you know, there's enough momentum around ESG climate change movements that, you know, this likely becomes a very viable business opportunity because it's fulfilling a need that, yeah, the, the world has identified will be helpful. And, you know, you guys are taking models from energy innovation companies, technology companies, um, the wind industry from like finance perspective and like upstream oil and gas. I mean, you got to put it underground somewhere. So you got to have geologists and like drill wells and like bringing that all in house to have a vertically integrated consulting group that it acts like a developer to capture carbon. It, it's awesome. Oh, way to go. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool. It is exciting. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, that's, that's really, I think that gives us a great overview of kind of your, your guys' project management side, but you, you specifically are on the R and D side. You're, you're a technology guy. Obviously we've had lots of great conversation around technology. What, uh, what are you guys thinking about now? Yeah. So we're developing. So the main thing we're working on is this in-house technology for CC because we think it's got such potential and not only can it lower the cost of our projects, but of course, if we had a in-house technology that can offer a lot of, again, logistical benefits, if we've got control over the, that design, the design and manufacturing of the capture uh, equipment. So we're continuing to push that forward with most of our R and D resources. And, and so we're currently at a t- technology readiness level of about four out of 10, 10 being for fully commercial, one being like, uh, just basic concept. And, uh, so we've done a lot of lab demonstrations of the core, uh, CO2 capture process. And I can to briefly mention what that cryogenic carbon capture is. So, um, so cryogenic based carbon capture is a technique to separate CO2 from a flue gas. And a flue gas is like a combustion byproduct gas. So something from like a uh, natural gas plant, a coal plant, or like I mentioned, cement and steel, they've got... The stuff coming out of the smokestack, right? Yes, exactly. Which has typically something like, like this is a pretty wide range, but like 3 to 30% CO2 in that gas. And the rest is mostly Mm -hmm. nitrogen, some oxygen. Uh, There's other pollutants, but... Some some uh, water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a good amount of water, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so we need to separate that CO2 in a pure way, and so that we can sequester it. And so the cryogenic method is you cool the flue gas down, and it just so happens that the CO2 is below the triple point, which is the point at which uh, it cannot turn into liquid. It could only go solid and gas. And so it actually changes phase when you, when you cool it enough from gas to solid, the CO2 does, and you can physically separate that solid CO2 from the rest of the, the gas mixture in a very pure way. And, and so that is the core method. And we have our process that we've developed around that core method to do it cost effectively. And, and in a relatively straightforward technology development, uh, framework. So we designed Frost EC, especially what we call Gen 1 Frost EC. We've got future generations that are uh, even more elegant, but much more challenging technically. Gen 1 Frost EC is designed to be pretty straightforward, like using almost entirely existing technologies other than this, this core cross process and, and sorting through that. 
And so we expect to commercialize uh, much quicker than most uh, technology development programs. So we're at, uh, we've done lab scale demonstrations to prove this separation process. And now we're doing our first full system demonstration uh, at the National Carbon Capture Center. We're planning to be operational this summer. By where, the end of where, summer. Is the, where is the National Carbon Capture Center? Yeah, National Carbon Capture Center is in Alabama. It is, uh, it is a DOE funded facility. It's like the place to demonstrate your carbon capture technology. And, and so, so it's really nice. If you got, um, a technology, you've got the funding, you can go there and they will actually provide you flue gas to test with and they'll provide you electricity if you need it and other things. So, uh, which is great because we're getting to even this relatively small scale demonstration. It's an enormous amount of flue gas. If we had to do that out back. It would really be feasible. <laughs> and a pretty significant amount of power as well. Yeah. And so we get to go there thanks to the DOE and, and do it for, you know, for that part for free. We have to you know, design and build the system, which is not cheap, but, um, sure. Yeah. So that's going to be really exciting. We'll be a first full system demonstration of Cross CC. And that's, that's the summer that you guys plan on? Yeah. We're planning to. Summer 2022? End of summer 2022 is when we plan to be operational. Uh, we're, cool. where you, we're, Almost, we've almost ordered all the parts basically, and um, and that's yeah, that's the timeline. Awesome, man. That's that's yeah. super cool. So technology readiness level four, but you expect that to. I mean, sounds like you guys have a, a fast timeline to try and get that to to ten in deployment ASAP. Yes. Yeah. So the next test would so that would get us to a technology readiness level of about six, and then we think that we can get to. Um, like a seven or eight, the next test. And that will be like, actually the next test would be a commercial project where we would generate revenue. That's the plan. We would go to one of our other projects. So the project side of the company is moving head on ethanol carbon capture, which is basically the low hanging fruit technologically because ethanol fermentation emits nearly pure CO2. So you don't really need a special carbon capture separation system to capture it. You basically, it's basically a, uh, Compress it up and dehydrate it. Sometimes you distill it, and uh, and uh, sorry, my punching. Um, and uh, and so the project, yeah, the project team is moving full speed ahead to develop those projects because that's going to allow us to build the in-house capability, the team to do all the parts of the puzzle that are needed for carbon capture and start generating revenue and be self self-sustaining. And uh, and so we would take Frosty C to. One of those projects, because at ethanol, there's the fermenter gas, which is pure CO2 or nearly pure. And then there is the combustion gas, the flue gas, which we're still going to be emitting, unfortunately. And so we could install Frosty C there as a demonstration. It just happens that ethanol plants tend to be pretty, you know, relatively small scale compared to like a coal plant. And so it's a smaller scale, kind of fits with a good uh, pilot demonstration. So it's a nice, and actually you can generate, so I mentioned 45 QTAX credit. There's actually in California, uh, low carbon fuel standards. And so if you can decarbonize fuel, you can get a credit for that. And actually those, the value of that can be quite high. So ethanol can be a fuel. And so if you sell it, if you decarbonize it and sell it as a fuel, uh, California, you, uh, you can, uh, generate a good amount of revenue. A lot, there's a lot of tax credits for that. Like more, instead of $50 a ton, it's more like $200 a ton. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So we're planning to do that soon. And then, um, the next one would be like a full scale coal plant demonstration. Um, so and, and the so we're hope again we try to move quite fast here. So our goal would be to have that that uh, ethanol demonstration operating uh, within two years from now. 
type of nice. thing, which I think most people don't talk that speak that way. It's like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this DOE project, and it's gonna be five years, and we're gonna do, you know, TRL six, and then you know, next five years will be TRL seven, or it's just yeah. Yeah, we we're, we're trying. You guys to, like we we we've got a mission, we've got focus, we're gonna go make money. Like, yeah, so and so we're mostly not, or actually, uh, got Carbon America is we haven't gotten any DOE funding, uh, for better or worse, but you know we think for better, uh, because no offense to DOE, I don't mean to come out that way. It's just uh, we're trying to move very quickly, and if you need to go on the DOE timeline, it could be very slow, like yeah. just really really slow, because it's like you gotta do this before that. You got to apply and then you got to wait for the funding and then you got to go through this entire like uh, feed study and then you, yeah, and then you do the detailed design and then you do the, and then you got to go demonstrate it for years. And, and then, yeah. and then after you've done all that, then you can go apply for the next one. It's just like, it's too slow. I, I couldn't agree more. No, no, I, it's not for me, not for us. Awesome, man. I'm, I'm super excited for you guys' company, all of the work that you guys are doing. It's, you know, I, I've been bearish, I'll say, on the carbon capture market and being like, oh, man, this, this isn't going to work. I don't understand how this actually adds value. But hearing your description of your guys' approach and having a technology-heavy focus and focusing on the current emitting streams at the highest point sources, which is the lowest hanging fruit, is excellent. I, I mean, it's probably the most convincing um, story of a company and a group that I've heard yet. So, and I, I mean, I eat, eat, live and breathe energy and, and the uh, energy economy and all, all, all this. So, yeah. So the, uh, I think a lot of people are, when they hear about carbon capture are, you know, think that it's a terrible idea because one, you're going to, you're going to pay all this capital to take away a bunch of energy efficiency of your plant. (laughs) So it's like, there's no, there's nothing good about it other than the fact that it eliminates CO2. So you really have to start from a perspective of, of decarbonization as an assumption. And it, and if you start with that assumption, then it turns into, okay, well, how much does that cost versus if I was to build this battery, right? Or some other option. And that's where it's like, oh, actually, although that is expensive and you're lowering the efficiency, it's actually overall cheaper than installing a lithium ion battery, unfortunately. And, and like you said, deployable or feasible in, in kind of a short timeline. Feasible. Like, and, you know, yeah. I didn't even mention this part, but I think it's also got more, uh, it's more politically palatable, right? I think it's more like a middle of the road, you know, like people who really like fossil fuel can keep burning it for now. And, uh, and, and people who want to decarbonize have a way to do it still. And, right. and then you go to like the oil companies, you can get them to actually participate rather than continue to delay the decarbonization yeah. effort. So um, it can really bring people together, I think, or, or we think. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're coming up on our time. So um, I'm hopeful to ask just a couple questions that we ask kind of all our guests. Um, so what's what's one thing about the energy industry that keeps you up at night or that, that scares you? Um, well, yeah, definitely whether or not we are going to decarbonize quickly enough to avoid um, a lot of a lot of pain and suffering from from climate change, really. Um, I think to what we were talking about earlier, people don't realize just how enormous of a challenge this is. Uh, like when we like when you start to think about it, when you're like, okay, we're going to build this company and we want to do all these things, and you start to say, okay, well, how are we going to get to that first power plant, right? That first power plant carbon capture. 
it's like, wow, that's a big job. And then you're like, okay, well, that is, <laughs> that's like one, there's like, that's like, say one coal plant out of uh, a thousand coal plants in the world or something like that. Um, and not to mention all the other industrial processes, uh, power processes and, and you know, transportation, et cetera. Uh, so it's just an enormous challenge and, and, and we continue to not move quickly enough. And, um, I, I'm pretty hopeful that we'll figure it out and uh, get there in time. But so far, we have not moved fast enough, and it does worry mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Well, anytime that people say challenge, I, I think that that's a uh, synonymous for opportunity, right? I mean, if, if you're willing to work hard and you're smart, then there's there's got to be something there. So, um, what what advice do you have for uh, young professionals in the in- energy industry, and then kind of leave us Dovetail off that and leave us on an optimistic note. Where, where do you see all this going? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, actually, to your point, um, it, there is an opportunity there. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, if you're a young professional, I think you can bank on we're going to decarbonize the worldwide economy. Um, and that includes, the first and foremost, probably the power sector and, um, and, and as well as transportation. So uh, I think... You could, I, I would put all your, you know, I would bet everything on that and, uh, and find a career path that fits in there. And, and there's no, I don't even think there's, don't worry about like getting in on the perfect technology right now or technology or prior policy or whatever. Um, cause I think there's going to be a long road. And, uh, I, I would actually even, if I was, you know, starting out, I would be looking more towards 10 years down the road of where things seem to go then, uh, get ahead, get ahead of that. And uh, so this clean dispatchable power, as I've been talking about, is is one of those. Like, how do we fill in the gaps of renewables? And I mentioned a few, uh, you know, carbon capture, energy storage, hydrogen, uh, geothermal, nuclear. Um, all these, have, you know, are, have potential to to help there. And, um, you know, I, I would start, you know, try to. I mean, I, I believe. And this goes to the just our philosophy here, but um, really try and think for yourself. Don't just like just because hydrogen is like the next hot thing. Don't assume that that is the best idea. I mean, like we have it. So when we've looked at hydrogen, for example, it looks really expensive. I think it could work for certain things like trucking and things like that, where there's mm-hmm. not really a great option otherwise. Um, but yeah, just try and do your own thinking on things. Really, uh, like we say, start from first principles. Um, which really just means like start from the bottoms up and think through what things truly cost and how they perform and, and whether or not, you know, one idea makes sense versus another versus just you know, what everyone says. And, uh, but yeah, I think to end on a positive note, like, like we were saying, there's a ton of opportunity here. It's a lot of excitement, uh, plenty of time for people to get in and help. And so I'd encourage people to do so. Miles of Bar. No better way to end it than there. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for having me.